We've done three sermons and we've really just got through his introduction from verse 1 down to verse 10, but it's been packed full of potency and, and poignancy and fervor as he, he sort of just came like a bull right out of the gate. And his main and immediate point was the gospel that I preached in Galatia to begin with is God's gospel. It did not come from man. It wasn't edited by man. I didn't preach it under the fear of man. And if you believe it, you're believing God's gospel. But if you're rejecting it as they had, because false teachers had come in and edited the gospel and changed the gospel, then what Paul was telling them was that you have rejected the gospel of God. Or as he says in uh, uh, last week in uh, verse 7, he calls it the gospel of Christ which is not just a language speaking what, about, what the gospel is about. Of course, the gospel of Christ is about Christ. But namely, what he meant there was that it is the gospel of Christ. It is the belonging of Christ. It is the possession of Christ. It's his gospel. You're not allowed to change it. You must believe it. You must proclaim it. You can share it. You can type it. You can print it. You can spread it everywhere, but you cannot change it. And neither, Paul is telling the church, neither must you allow teachers to come and convince you to change it. So that's what he has been saying so far. Now look at verse 9 as we remember what he said last week and sort of build an understanding for what he's going to say this week. And it's this in verse 9. He says, as I've said already, I'll say it again. They had, they had a, a, uh, a southern... Uh, uh, Baptist up the back who says, hallelujah, can I get an amen? And so he repeats it and he goes, I say it again. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed, anathema. Let him be considered in your mind as an enemy of God from the, before the foundations of the earth, as allocated to damnation, not worth your time or your prayers. That's what you do to somebody who is dedicated, confirmed, sealed, uh, adamantly against the gospel, trying to teach churches against the true gospel. And then he says in verse 10, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? When we read verse 9 last week and we said there's people you don't pray for, the reason you and I got uncomfortable with that idea is because we fear man. Paul says, I don't care about man's opinion when it comes to the content of the gospel. We get uncomfortable with that because we care what they think instead of ultimately their eternal destination. If we loved them more, we would care what they think less. And like Paul, he says, am I trying to please man? Well, you could say, yeah, a little bit, right, Paul? Like you want him to go to heaven instead of hell. But that's not because ultimately, ultimately it pleases them. Ultimately, I preach the gospel to the lost. And if that's you here tonight and you're not a Christian, the deep reason, I mean, I love you. I love the lost. This church loves you. We're glad you're here. Your friend that invited you so that you can hear the gospel loves you. We want you to hear the gospel. But friends, the ultimate, absolute end of all ends reason that we preach the gospel is because we love God and seek Him to receive the glory He deserves. It's not one or the other. It's not love man or love God. It's love God above all else, preaches gospel that they might be saved, and when they hate it, when they despise it, and when they come to attack it, Paul says, we're not here pleasing them. 
Here's his logic. If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a slave of Christ. I just would never have become a Christian or devoted my life to the preaching of this word and gospel if my, uh, uh, my priorities were making people happy. It must be the same for every single one of us. You can either serve men or you can serve Christ. I've said this before. Pastors especially do not work for the church. They work for God and serve the church. They minister to the church the message of God. We as Christians, we love each other, serve each other. But ultimately, as Paul says, we're slaves of Christ first. We're, we're servants of the world in the sense that we love them and give the good news of the gospel to them. But ultimately, we're slaves of God first. It is impossible to have two masters. One will say, do this. The other will say, stop that. One will say, do that. The other will say, no, do this. This is the case. If man and God, we, we seek to allow them to both be our masters, a, a little bit of God, a little bit of man, Paul says that's just not a category in Christian thinking. You are either a servant of Christ or a man pleaser. You are either somebody who God owns and has sealed for himself or you're a coward. And Paul says that we ought to jump completely and directly in the one direction of pleasing God and therefore preaching the one true saving gospel of Jesus Christ. Now that's all very strong language for Paul to say. The question in the Galatians' mind, and probably in your mind at some point, is where does he have such an audacity and, 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 and authority to go and claim such things as, if you disagree with my gospel, you're going to hell? That, that's pretty big language. And, and in fact, he doesn't really even uh, refer to or sort of uh, appropriate the, the authority from other people. He doesn't say the Jerusalem church agrees. He doesn't say, uh, uh, the apostles told me I can say this. His, his only claim to authority so far has been, God sent me. And so what he's going to start going into from verse 11 onwards, he'll even do it further into next week's passage as he deals with his confrontation with Peter, the apostle, which is good fun to study. But uh, in tonight's passage, his question, is, the answer that he's giving the people is, where do I get this authority? Uh, why do I say, keep on saying that I'm an apostle from God, not man? Let me tell you the history. Let me tell you my biography so that you know I'm not a man pleaser. So that you get through your heads that I don't have a man-pleasing gospel. Do you remember that this is what we were, we were recapping and saying? That the Galatian heretics, the, 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 the Jewish guys who had come to the Gentile region of Galatia, who had received the gospel, these Judaizers, they're called, came to a church and said, it's not enough that you received the gospel, you must also be circumcised. And as that church said, well, that's not what the Apostle Paul told us. He told us that he was sent from Jesus and his message was faith alone saves. And they said, oh, you're mistaken twofold. First of all, Jesus didn't send Paul. The Jerusalem apostles sent Paul. Secondly, Paul changed the message because he's a coward and a man pleaser. And the snip snip gospel doesn't get as many Gentiles in the door. So he changed it. We're here to edit all of that and bring you back to the fullness of the gospel. So tonight, in, in tonight's passage, Paul, Paul is going to really make some strong points that Jesus is the one who told me the gospel, that the gospel that he preaches is not acceptable and pleasing to everybody, and thirdly, that he started his ministry without even thinking about what the Jerusalem apostles thought. So let's read. Let, let's look at verse 11. 
chapter 1, verse 11. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Enormous difference. I wasn't told it or taught it. I didn't read it or find it out. It was revealed from Jesus in the flesh to me. He says, verse 13, For you've heard of my former life in Judaism, and everybody's heard this, how I, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Do you note that he doesn't say for the teachings of the scriptures? Because he's realized those two are different. Not the scriptures. I I was mistaken. But I was zealous for the traditions of my fathers because he was a Pharisee. He says in verse 15, But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before I was. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas. That's just the Greek version of Peter's name. So here the apostle Peter there. I went to visit Peter and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing before God, I do not lie. So you know this is an important point that he's making. He's oathing that he's telling the truth. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was, un- I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. May God bless this reading in our midst tonight. What Paul says here is that uh, that there's all kinds of ways that we're going to see this is not man's gospel and he is not man's apostle. First of all, we see him say in verse 11 and 12 that the gospel came to him not by man's teaching. The gospel that Paul knew then proclaimed among the Gentile world was not by man's teaching. It was rather by a revelation of Jesus Christ. This means that he was not taught it from another human. He he didn't get it passed down as a tradition and then sort of become the the first main and popular teacher who popularized it. No, it wasn't like that. It's not as if he read it himself. He he found like like Augustine or, or maybe like Martin Luther reading the commentaries of Augustine, finding this old doctrine of justification by faith alone that had been laying underneath the, the sacramental and the and the, the false gospel of, of the Church of Rome for so long. And hundreds of years later, a, a millennia later, here's Luther rediscovering this doctrine and preaching it for the Reformation. Not like that. Paul didn't find it in ancient texts. He didn't even discover it himself as he was reading the Bible. That's not how he, was, he, he came to an understanding of this gospel. The way that he came to an understanding of this gospel was by a revelation of Jesus Christ to him personally, which you can go and read in Acts chapter 9. This is as Paul was, and he's going to tell us, he was on his way to persecute and destroy more churches and more Christians 
when Jesus appeared to him, spoke to him directly, and then went and taught him directly in later days. And he, he actually starts by giving an alibi. So, so, so here's my claim. I didn't hear it from mankind. I heard it from Jesus himself. Now, that's a pretty easy thing to claim, even if it is a clever story. Because, because anybody can claim, I had no teacher, I'm completely self-taught, no seminary for me, I'm merely a genius. But then, of course, you can go look up on their LinkedIn and find out they, in fact, did study under XYZ. They, in fact, did learn from other teachers. So here Paul starts to give his alibi. He's saying, I've told you that I heard the gospel, then started to preach it without ever speaking to another apostle of Jesus. Here's my alibi. Here's what happened. I was traveling. He's going to start telling us in uh, 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 verse uh, 13. You heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in, advancing in Judaism beyond my own ways. And yet verse 16 says, God was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach. So, so here's, the, here's the timeline of Paul. He's going towards Damascus from Jerusalem, which is kind of, kind of northeast. And as he's going on the highway, he says in Acts 26, it's this little detail, but it's so amazing. He says, at midday, Jesus appeared to me brighter than the sun. There's no brighter sun than the midday sun. And he was looking up at the sky, didn't even notice the blazing sun. He just saw a blinding Jesus and he was knocked off his horse. He became blind in that moment and God, uh, uh, through Jesus, spoke to him and said, why are you persecuting me? Paul says, he recounts this multiple times throughout the scripture. He says, Lord, Lord, who are you? He says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And, and, and so after that, after hearing and seeing and, and the other men who were with him saw no light but, but heard the voice. And he rose up and he went into uh, Damascus where he lay blind and wondered what would become of his life. Now, uh, 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 considering the fact that the Jesus he was trying to snuff out because everybody was worshipping him as Messiah, just appeared to him in blazing light. He's having quite an existential crisis right now. He's having a, a, a real identity crisis, this Paul the Apostle, uh, before he was Paul. Also, let's just scratch the idea that he was Saul, and then when he became a Christian, he became Paul. Not historically or biblically accurate. Saul is just the Hebrew name. Paul is just the Greek name. He's called both by different language speakers his whole life. Okay, I'm sorry that your, your pastor told you, if God can make Saul into a Paul, imagine what he can do with you. It's just a language pronunciation difference. Uh, so that's not quite as spiritual as it first sounded. Uh, but anyway, so, so he, he gets, he's converted. It, it's, the, the scripture seems to suggest that as Paul beheld Jesus in light, that was the moment of his conversion. And Jesus commissioned him and said to him, I'm going to send you to the Gentiles to turn them from Satan to God, to turn them from darkness to light and give them salvation in the name of Jesus. He's, he's then in the, I guess, in a hotel or a motel inn and, and he's blind still and God sends another Christian to pray over him. He was timid and a little bit afraid of doing this. It's, it seemed to him that it was a good move for Jesus to strike Paul blind. Maybe he can just sneak in and finish the job. Why am I praying for the church's greatest enemy? But he went in in obedience. He prayed for him. The, the scales fell off his eyes. He was healed as, a, as really a sign of what had occurred spiritually. He rose up to his feet and then was baptized. Here's the timeline. 
We then read down in verse, uh, 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 verse 17. I did not go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. Right? He, didn't, he didn't go, I, 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 I saw Jesus. He told me to be an apostle. And I thought, well, I should see what the other apostles think. I should check this, this, this vision that I had uh, against the preaching of the other apostles. He didn't do that. He, he, uh, instead, he says, I went away into Arabia and returned again then later to Damascus. Then after three years, I went to Jerusalem to visit Peter and remained with him about 15 days. So the timeline is, knocked off his horse, goes into Damascus, is baptized, then goes away into Arabia, the desert, for three years. Scholars and theologians always ask the question, what was he doing basically unheard of by other people, in Arabia, just next to Damascus, for three whole years. And the answer kind of clearly comes with almost unanimous agreement that what he was doing was learning from Jesus in the flesh. Jesus had stood off the throne, come down to earth, and gave him the three-year degree that the other apostles had had on earth with Jesus. Paul then has one-on-one with Jesus and himself. And he learns the theology of the gospel. He learns how the the Old Testament preaches Christ. How the church is now the answer to God's purpose. How how the the gospel is to be preached to all nations. And what the, the future looks like in all of this. This is what Jesus revealed to Paul in their one on one seminary training. That happened for three years. And while he was there, he would have been doing some preaching. Because then he went to Damascus and. Acts chapter 9 tells us this. Then he was back in Damascus, uh, but as he was preaching the gospel there, the king tried to kick him out, and so he was, he was uh, 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 lowered down out of the, the, the city wall through a little basket and ran away. He came down to Jerusalem then. This is in Acts chapter 9, actually. Uh, I'll get you to turn there just in case you're not familiar. <clears throat> So he's saved, he spent three years learning from Jesus, then he goes down to Jerusalem, kind of on the run. Verse 26 of chapter 9 in the book of Acts. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him. They did not believe that he was a disciple. This just seemed way too good to be true. This is, this is a really sneaky, sneaky move that Paul hadn't tried yet before. He's just going to pretend he's a Christian walk on in and butcher them all. They thought, we're smarter than that. But Barnabas went with him. This was uh, one of the, the, the Christians. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them in Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. So he's back down in Jerusalem and what's he's doing? He's starting to evangelize. He's starting to do street preaching. He's starting to go house to house and uh, proclaim the mysteries that Jesus has unveiled to him out in the desert. Verse 30. And when the brothers learned... uh, uh, Sorry, verse 29. He spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. And now he's an apologist and a debater. But they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, that's the Christians, they brought him down to Caesarea, that's down to the coast, and sent him back to Tarsus, which is his hometown, by boat. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up, walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It multiplied. 
Paul had been saved. He went to a seminary in the desert with Jesus, face to face, body to body, came down to Jerusalem, preached the gospel. Then as he was seeking to be killed, he he, uh, was put on a ship and went back up to Tarsus, his hometown. What we, the next thing we learn about him then, uh, and Paul talks about this in, in Galatians 1, and we'll, we'll get back there in just a sec, but he says, I went up to Cilicia and Syria, which is where Tarsus is. And then he says, uh, uh, later on he came uh, 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 to Antioch, which we see in Acts chapter 11. If you look at Acts chapter 11, the gospel had taken root in Antioch in Syria, not too far away from where Paul's sitting and preaching and teaching in Tarsus. And as these Gentiles are hearing the word and being saved, they've got this like first mixed uh, uh, national church going on. It's thriving. Hundreds are coming to know the Lord. And so they all say, we need some more teachers. We need some more preachers. We need to solidify this whole thing a little bit. Say Barnabas, one of the elders, say, Barnabas, do you happen to know anybody that might have an insight into the gospel who could come here with the gift of teaching and solidify the church? Barnabas says, ah, yes, that psychopath down in Jerusalem, the converted executor who was getting hunted by the Hellenists, he's just a few miles east over in Tarsus. I'll go get him, uh, west over in Tarsus. So over he went, he grabbed him and pulled him back. This is in Acts chapter 11, verse 25. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he'd found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year... They met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. It was then from Antioch that they hear, and this is later on in Acts chapter 11, they hear that the Jerusalem church is undergoing a famine because a a prophet tells them. A prophet up in in, uh, uh, Antioch says, God's about to send a famine to Jerusalem. Send financial aid to the Jewish churches. And so Paul and Barnabas go down south uh, uh, in order to be able to give, uh, uh, carry that donation down to them. And it says this in Acts chapter 11, uh, verse 30. They did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So, so this is now his second trip to Jerusalem. Remember, let's, let's do the timeline again. This is all going to be very relevant as we go back to Galatians. Saved in Damascus, went to seminary in Arabia, then came back down to Jerusalem, preached, left quickly, went back up to Tarsus, came over to the church of Antioch and preached there, went down to Jerusalem because of the famine, gave the the relief and the financial aid to them, then went back up to Antioch, and that's when we pick up in Acts chapter 13, his missionary journeys to go over to Galatia. Now we've done full circle, and we're back to the Galatian timeline. In other words, all that this tells us about the argument that Paul's making is, where in this timeline do you see me traveling to Jerusalem, spending an extended amount of time there checking my theology? Nowhere. Look at what he says in verse uh, 18 of Galatians chapter 1. Go back to Galatians. Verse 16, he says, I did not immediately consult with anybody. I started preaching because Jesus told me to. That's what I did. Verse 18, he says, but after three years, I did go up to Jerusalem. So when you go to double check me and check my sources and fact check me, and you go and ask Peter, hey, Paul says he never came and asked you about, about what the gospel was. He just started preaching it. Is that true? Let me be honest. Peter will tell you that I saw him, but 
It was three years after I've already been preaching the gospel. And as he says in Galatians 1, I was only there for 15 days. That's not a long time. That's not long enough to go page to page throughout the entire scripture and figure out my, my theology. What is he saying? My purpose for going to Jerusalem was not to ask Peter permission to preach the gospel because it's not man's gospel. I'm not a Jerusalem-approved apostle. I'm a Jesus-approved apostle. I'm not a Peter-sent apostle. I'm a Jesus-sent apostle. So though we spoke, he's not my authority. He'll tell you so. And then he goes on. He says in verse 19, I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. I'm telling you, I am not lying before God. And then he fills out the rest of the timeline I've already told you. Look at verse 21. Then I went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia, that's where Tarsus and Antioch are, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. All they heard was, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith. So what he's saying is, I wasn't known face-to-face, personal knowledge, great relationships, uh, in-depth conversation with all of the churches down in Jerusalem. They heard it said that I'm preaching. They heard me preaching. They saw the guys with clubs chasing me. But, but that's not to say then. That, that's, that's still not proof that they taught me the gospel. They heard me preaching the gospel. In fact, can we say this? They heard me teaching them stuff they didn't know about the gospel. People would say, isn't it likely that as he met Peter? I mean, that's 15 days. It's not a short, it's not a tiny time. It's not not saying hello at the train station. Surely Peter filled in some information to Paul. We could say, yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe Peter told him some of the intricacies of stuff that he didn't know about the life of Jesus. Maybe. But you know what's even more likely? That Peter, who was still struggling with the Gentile Jew thing, was learning from Paul, who was to be the apostle to the Gentiles, who had met with the resurrected Jesus for three years. It's it's more the case that Paul taught Peter than that Peter taught Paul, and that is an enormously significant statement, if you understand it. So in other words, he's saying, this gospel that I preach was not taught to me from man, and I've proved it because where on my biography, where in my timeline, is there even space that I saw another apostle before I spent three years, then ten years, preaching Jesus to the nations? It won't be found. That is his first argument. It's not man's gospel. I'm not a man pleaser because I didn't hear it from men. Secondly, we can see that it's not man's gospel. Paul's not a man pleaser because, as verse 10 tells us, this gospel is not even to man's liking. Like if, you've, if you're trying to make an argument that Paul preaches a man-pleasing gospel at least catch him saying something that doesn't get him killed in every city he goes to. It's a pretty weak argument. That's an enormously flawed argument. They're saying he preaches stuff that he knows people will love, but everywhere he goes, people are chasing him, trying to murder him. So no, in fact, we go back to verse 10. If I was still trying to please man, I would never have been a servant of Christ I was a well-paid Jewish rabbi. Thank you very much. I own shares on the Goldstein housing market. I did not need this to get successful or popular. I had it fine. They reckon that um, uh, secular historians look at this, this, this character, Paul of Tarsus, and they say if he had not become a Christian, 
the whole Western world would have known about him anyway because so large was his intellect and influential his teaching. He probably just would have been a, a famous Jewish historian and philosopher. You probably would be reading him along with Socrates and Plato and, and Paul of Tarsus. Such was his ingenious intellect. But instead, he became a Christian, lost all of his reputation, and ran for his life for the rest of his life, which would not last long anyway. But also, we can see, look at verse 13. Paul says, this is not man's gospel. I'm not a man pleaser. Because this isn't, this isn't even a human idea. Look, look what verse 13 and 14 says. This was not my idea. Verse 13. You've heard of my former life in Judaism. How I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. The next logical step is not joining them. Setting the detonation charges at the foundation of the building, then running into story number 10. That's not, that's not the logic here. I was trying to destroy it. I was hell-bent on killing as many Christians as I could find, as he goes on to say in verse 14. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age, among my own people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. That's the Pharisaical, uh, the Pharisaical teaching. Paul, was, Paul saw himself... I know sometimes we read Acts and we see Paul killing people for their faith in Jesus and we go, why does he even think he was serving God in doing that? Like, like shouldn't we realize that as soon as you're killing somebody, you're not serving God? <laughs> That's very 21st century of us. <laughs> At least in the old covenant mindset, all he's saying is, I like Phinehas. He's my favorite Bible story character. Remember when Jewish boys went to do Sunday school, Saturday school, Shabbat school, and they went and, and they learned all of their coloring in pictures? You know what pictures they colored in? You know, what, you know what characters the Jewish boys dressed up in to go to the Jewish Halloween parties? They dressed up as Phinehas, the guy who's known as pinning a man with his prostitute together with one spear, then being blessed of God and being made a priest for his awesome acts. That's a hero. That's a Bible character. Or maybe it's Elijah. We all love Elijah. Your grandma used to sing that song, These Are the Days of Elijah. That's a great song for grannies to remember Elijah. How he challenged the prophets of Baal to prove their God's existence. And upon failure, with plenty of mockery and heaps of toilet slurs, he then turned to them and hacked them to pieces with a sword. Like real human flesh, chunks, organs, entrails, blood, all over him. And then he prayed and said, thank you, God, for the strength to do thy service. These are the heroes of old covenant Jewish men. So when Paul is chasing down Christians because they're committing idolatry by worshipping some, some zealot who called himself God, he thinks, I'm like Phinehas, I'm like Elijah, God loves me. He is so confirmed in this zealous way of thinking. In other words, you cannot argue that Paul's gospel and his whole ministry and calling arose from himself or anybody else because everybody else was at the end of his sword and he was at the other end of the sword. This, this was never going to be a, a believable lie that Paul invented this idea or that the Christians just somehow convinced him, 
you should do this for us. Rather, his, his argument in verse 15 is, this was entirely God's work of saving me. In chapter 26, verse 5 of the book of Acts, he's telling the, uh, Agrippa about his conversion. He says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison, but after receiving authority from the chief priests, I went to put to death all of these, and I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. He goes on. Then it was in connection with this ministry towards Damascus with the authority of the commission of chief priests at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun. That's what we referenced before. That shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Is it hard for you to kick against the goads? And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus who you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose. Get ready. This is awesome. To appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. When Paul tells his testimony, he doesn't say, I was on a journey. I figured this might be the next step. He says, I was screaming at breakneck speed against the church, then found myself in their seat going the opposite direction. This was not his decision. God changed him. So he goes on to say, Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared it first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, then throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. That's what Paul says. It's, it's not, I didn't receive it from man. It's not the kind of gospel that impresses or pleases man. And it's not the kind of gospel that this man ever would have thought of or ever would have chosen to start preaching. It was God's work in me. Look at verse 15. As sort of a, a little application for us spiritually. In verse 15, Paul sort of grounds the reason that he's an apostle entirely in God. Because God chose him before he could make any choices. Then because God revealed to him something he could never have discovered himself. That is that we see here divine election and effectual calling. Unconditional election and irresistible grace in the one verse. Verse 15. When he who had set me apart before I was born. And called me by his grace. Verse 16. Was pleased to reveal his son to me. In order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. He sees that his conversion was God's idea. Was God's doing. And happened by God's power. He was just the passive recipient of God's amazing grace. He can go on. That this gospel that he then preaches. Is not to man's glory. 
It's not a man-pleasing gospel. I'm not a man-pleasing apostle because the gospel I'm preaching doesn't redound, doesn't work up to any of man's glory. God is the only one who gets glory out of this. Look at what he says in verse uh, uh, 23 of chapter 1. In other words, when everybody heard that Paul was preaching this, did they all say, we are such worthy people, we are such mighty Christians that converted Paul, and Paul is such a marvelous and righteous man? No. Here's the conclusion that everybody came to. In other words, we ask, why did God wait so long to convert Paul instead of making him one of the original apostles? This is why. So that God's glorious grace was made to appear all the more powerful. Look at what it says in verse 23. This is the effect Paul's testimony had on everybody. They were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. That's not talking good of Paul. That's saying this guy done messed up. This guy tried to kill us all. Now he's preaching our message. He's obviously under the influence of God, not his own logic, planning, or power. And then verse 24. And they glorified God because of me. That's what Paul says. The gospel that I'm preaching, the ministry and mission that I'm undertaking, Galatian heretics, you are idiots if you even think it's a tellable or believable lie that this is a man-pleasing gospel. The only person that gets glory through Paul's gospel and Paul's conversion is God alone. Let me say it of you as well and of me. The only person that ever gets glory through your conversion, your salvation, your forgiveness, your justification, adoption, perseverance, sanctification and glorification, the only person who gets the glory for a genuine salvation is God alone. Not the preacher who says the gospel that you believe. Not the family that prayed for you. Not the examples of Christianity around you. Never does glory go to them. They are all just the same beggars that were saved by God's grace. They were just the same dead sinners that God made alive by his powerful grace. They are just the same wretches in the darkness and power of Satan that God turns to the light and the power of God just like you. God is the only one who gets glory when the real gospel is preached and when people really come to salvation through it. It is all to the glory of God. Turn to Philippians chapter 3. We'll see this again. And here's where it gets so poignant. The irony is that the biggest, most I'll, I'll tell you this even by experience from dealing with, 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 with people believing false gospels. This will be your Jehovah's Witnesses or your Mormons, the people who, who present to you with all of their humility and all of their kindness, that, 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 that it's very proud of you to think that you can go to heaven for free. Actually, you need to work it. The reality is that there is nothing that tickles the, 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 the feelings, nothing that inflames the, 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 the esteem of a sinner than telling them that God needs their help to get them to heaven. And it's so mind-blowing, it doesn't matter what it is that they need to do. The, the natural little Roman Catholic in all of us, the natural little Pharisee in all of us, loves to hear that. You need to, you'd be amazed at the sorts of things I've 
physically met people and things they have done in order to try and come nearer to God because of false teachers. You need to entirely cut off your family and consider them accursed because they're not in this group. You need to chop off genitalia. That happens in Galatians. So, so, so we're thinking, these guys are, are so thick. No, this is the power of false religion. And I'm saying the, the self-destroying pride, the depths of human depravity and pride that we naturally have, we're willing to do anything to work so long as it doesn't include receiving God's grace for free. That's degrading to the natural human mind. But, but, but attacking family, chopping off body parts, donating enormous amounts of money to the apostle with the white dress thing so that he can go to the, to the headquarters of the cult in some other nation or the, or, the, or, or the castrating of people chemically so that they can be committed to the church, right? This sort of thing happens. It happens because humankind wants so desperately to just be told from God he needs your help. And Paul says, that's the wrong gospel. That's not my gospel. The gospel that Paul preaches is so intrinsically insulting to man because it is so intrinsically glorifying of God and it requires nothing of you. You want to help? You can't. You want to be a a co-worker and co-mediator for your soul? You're not. It's not an option. It's receive God's free grace or perish. He doesn't pander to our desires to contribute. Paul says this in Galatians chapter 3. Sorry, Philippians chapter 3. He's getting into the mindset of those who love to consider themselves even just an ounce of righteous enough to get to heaven. Even just just a little bit above the average guy, that's why they're going to go to heaven. Everybody wants to believe that. But here's what Paul says. He says, verse 4, Philippians 3, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. I mean, if, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. He's saying like, if we're going to play the religious card, I win every single day. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. I wasn't just a normal hoi polloi uh, Jew. I was a Pharisee. As far as zeal goes, I was a persecutor of the church. As far as righteousness under the law, I was blameless. There wasn't a, a, there wasn't a herb in my spice rack that I wasn't tithing to the exact amount. Verse 7. Here's the miraculous part. Not that somebody can try and obey some laws and traditions. Here's the miraculous part. Whatever gain I had, I considered them as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as beep. Original Greek, skubala, that's an MA rated word. Beep, that's what Paul says in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from obeying the law. The natural man, I'm telling you tonight, if you are not a Christian, this is deep inside of you. It hates this idea. You have no righteousness to offer God. 
You are completely bankrupt. You are totally hopeless and helpless and weak. In fact, you're dead. You have nothing but evil and unrighteousness as far as the law of God is considered. God's not saying, you've done well, but he can get you the rest of the way. He's not a dad holding your hand to get you across the marathon. He's not going to see your 90% savings and top up the rest of the deposit. You have nothing. But the Christians, they hear that and they say, Amen. I almost died trying to earn something. I almost ended my life. I I despised who I was when beforehand I thought I had to earn something. The true born again heart that loves Jesus Christ says, Hallelujah, I'm a wretch. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was totally blind, but now I see. What's the other line he says? I was completely lost. Now I'm found. That's the only thing that a Christian professes. This is the miracle of Paul's mindset. In verse 9, he keeps on, uh, uh, verse 9, he keeps on going, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That is the gospel. That is the gospel that degrades the self-righteous. There's no gospel for you if you want to help God save you. There's no good news for you and no escape from hell if your one condition to God is that he respects your best attempts. You know what he calls it? A four-letter word that would get bleeped out in church. That's what he thinks of your righteousness. But oh, how he loved you. In, In your emptiness and bankruptcy, when you had nothing, he provided everything in Jesus. He sent him to live the life you couldn't. He killed Jesus as the punishment of the sins that you were never going to be able to pay for. He rose Jesus to life to tell you for certain that if you believe in him, you too will have eternal life. And then he brought him back to heaven and sat him as king over the universe and sent men like Paul and the other apostles to preach the gospel and have it written down by the Holy Spirit so that generation after generation after generation until tonight, here, over 2,000 years since Jesus, the same gospel message has not lost an ounce of its power. And though you are disgusting, though you are vile to God, though you are bankrupt and though you are lost and far away, the blood of Jesus has power to bring you immediately to God, to wash you completely of sin, and to give you an inheritance amongst the saints who are sanctified by Jesus' name. This gospel will never lose its power because it's not man's philosophy. Paul didn't hear it from mankind, he heard it from Jesus. It's not the gospel that pleases man, it's one that serves God. It's not one that brings glory to man, it's one that brings glory to God. It's not one that was man's idea or even your idea. Jesus sought you when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God. He, the Savior, interposed his precious blood. It's the only reason any single one of us are saved. So friends, after Paul's example, if we can learn from him, Is Jesus and Jesus' mission, is he the sprinkling on the dessert of the meal of your life? Is he the most important passenger on the train of your life? Or is he your Lord, which means you're his slave, which means, and I tell you this by the Holy Spirit, 
His kingdom must be your highest priority so long as you have breath in your lungs. It's the only thing it means. That's absolutely what it must mean for Him to be your Lord. And friends, there are many of you who today believe a false gospel. Somebody told you that you'll have healing and friendship and community and blessings in this life. You'll have your best life imaginable if you come to Jesus. That's a false gospel. That's, not, that's man's gospel. That's a gospel that gives you whatever the heck you want. Some of you believe the gospel that you're pretty good and Jesus would love you for his team. And that's man's gospel. It's an unsaving gospel. But the true gospel that you are a sinner, that God is a forgiving saviour, is held out to you this moment in Jesus Christ. And our prayer is that you receive it. Let's pray. Father God, there is only one gospel. There is only one gospel because there's only one God. There's only one gospel because there's only one mediator between God and man. The man, Christ Jesus, risen from the dead, put to the death for our sin, born in our flesh to be a perfect man. This is the only way to God. And we thank you that though it is so exclusive, it is yet so inclusive that anybody can receive it. I pray, Lord God, that we would understand According to Paul's argumentation and his letter in Galatians, according to his own testimony, the reason we can believe such an enormously powerful, unimaginably beautiful gospel is because it was delivered with the authority of God. God, we confess, we would not believe this if it did not come to us by the power of the Spirit with full assurance that you are the one who said it. We would just throw it to the side as too good to be true. But Father God, we thank you that it is true. We thank you that it saves people. We thank you that it saved us. We thank you that you were pleased, having set us aside before we were born, to reveal your son to us in your own perfect timing and putting a calling on our life to belong to you. I pray, Lord God, that that, that verse would become true for many here tonight. Those who are still in darkness and under Satan would be able to put tonight right now as the moment that you revealed your son to them and they placed their faith in him. Lord, please save them. We thank you for the Bible. We thank you for the gospel. We pray all of this in Jesus' wonderful and glorious name. And everybody said? This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.